So I put all my heart and soul to the extent of my family suffering. Oh, yeah, I regret it very much. Association football is the most popular outdoor sport in Britain. Thousands play and millions watch the game. Keenest of all are the youngsters, whose heroes are the famous professional footballers, and who dream of the day when they too, perhaps, may wear the colours of a famous club and hear the roar of the crowd. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Under Flat Caps and Bowler Hats. My name is Dan Reed, and this is a Man Marking production. Today we'll be taking another look back at an example of mental ill health in football from yesteryear. Today we're going to be talking about a man that we can only call a legend, a Brazilian legend, a football legend, the man they called the joy of the people, Gaincha. 16 is Gaincha, number 10 is Pelé. Gaincha... You see, he could do it too. Oh, well, Garrincha was known as the Portuguese O Alegria do Povo, which was the, the the joy of the people, because he was a winger. He was, you know, he was fun-loving. You know, he would, you know, he would dribble around a man and then come back and dribble around them again just because it was good fun. You know, he dribble right, he dribble around three men, be in front of the goal, and then like you know, pass it to someone else to score. You know, he was all about having fun. He was all about not taking football seriously. Baroto, the great hero of the Brazilian side, Garincha, leaving it for Garincha. Now, Garincha Wilson battle again. This man could do everything. Somebody who I think would still do well um, in um, in more contemporary, the more contemporary game. Um, he's a powerful, surprisingly powerful and a tremendously skilled dribble. Um, his dribbling, his ability to, to dribble uh, and his love of dribbling drove his coach, all coaches mad from the time he was a kid um, to the time he was a, on the national, the national side. Um, they all tried to get him to stop and eventually they all realized that they couldn't and in fact shouldn't. Back to Garincha. What's he going to do? He shoots. It's there. Spring it is beaten. 3-1 to Brazil. And so the Brazilian side go to the semi-finals and England go home. He did maintain that sense that he was just doing it for fun. He would have, like, he would have done it without getting paid. Um, and I think that was really appealing to people. That he was seen as you know, really authentically you know, from the people of Brazil. And he carried that with him. You know, he didn't. He wasn't a player who, you know, began to get paid and then suddenly, um, you know, had a new car and a new way of talking and 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 and, and, and all of that. He really, uh, in some ways, never changed. And you know, it's it a bit sad. But you know, the interview I'm, you know, I was referring to was from 1982, the year before he died. And you know, he was really sort of reflecting back and um, you know, justifying what he'd done, even mistakes he'd made. They did this one with Gahinsha and it said, you know, he's infantile, you know, you shouldn't be taking him to the World Cup because he doesn't have the intelligence, you know, to handle, to handle this kind of level. Uh, and and it, people look at it now and just laugh, you know, as if, you know, being able to do 
you know, the square root of nine, you know, or, you know, tell us, you know, who wrote, you know, A Midsummer Night's Dream was relevant to how good you could play football. Uh, so Gahincha was never going to win any any intelligence contests, but when it came to when it came to football, he was head and shoulders above everyone else at the time, or almost everyone else at the time. He couldn't be he couldn't be ignored. I was joined on today's episode by two really special guests. Yeah, my name is Andrew Downey. I have been a foreign correspondent for most of my life, uh, living in Latin America, first in Mexico, then in Haiti, and then for the last most of the last 20 years in Brazil, first in Rio, and then in Sao Paulo. So um, for most of that time, I was covering politics and economics and social issues and environment and all the stuff that foreign correspondents write about. And then about 2012, 2013, I, I started to concentrate on sport because Brazil had the, Olymp the the World Cup coming up and then the Olympics. So I focused on sport. And in that same period, I wrote a book, which is the documentary, sorry, which is a biography of Dr. Socrates, the great Brazilian player captain of the 1982 team and a, a huge figure in politics and activism in Brazil. One of the things I always I also did when I was in Rio at the turn at about 2003-2004, I translated a book about Gahincha, Rui Castro's biography of Gahincha. The Gahincha came about because I was quite friendly with Alex Belos, who wrote, you know, the classic study of Brazilian football, the culture of Brazilian football, called Futebol, the Brazilian way of life. He was in Rio as the Guardian correspondent at the same time as me, and. Alex had knew all about Gahincha. He'd read the Rui Castro book and, and loved it. And, you know, we spoke about, you know, that book. Um, we would occasionally go to games together and, and we'd hang out. And, and Alex had tried, before he wrote his book, Futebol, he had tried to sell the idea of a translation of the Gahincha biography. And it was, it never actually happened because... He couldn't get a publisher interested, I think in, in large part because they weren't able to track down... Uh, f f the, 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 they had a problem with the rights of for photographs and they couldn't do the book without photographs. I may be misremembering this or I may not know the exact details, but the, the bottom line was Alex wanted to translate this book and wasn't able to, to get it off the ground. He ended up writing Futebol, as I said, that, that great book. And... You know, that had a great reception and there was more of an interest in, I think, books about Brazilian football. And so I had the idea of, now I kind of picked up Alex's baton and, and took the idea to London and went around some publishers and said, listen, now I've got this, this idea, why don't we do it? And I managed to get it off the ground. I spoke to Hui Castro, the author, and he was enthusiastic. And so, you know, I wrote the proposal and, and Bloomsbury Yellow Jersey, the, the sports imprint of Bloomsbury, they thought it was a good idea, and, and I ended up doing the translation. I'm Roger Kittleson. I'm a professor of history at Williams College uh, in Massachusetts in the U.S. Uh, I work on Brazil, specifically on race and politics and football. And I wrote um, a book called The Country of Football, which is uh, how Brazilians refer to their, their country, although lots of other countries would probably like that title and 
and dispute that claim. Um, but I wrote it because I'd been going to Brazil uh, since I was a kid and been studying Brazil for a couple of decades. And in the 90s, when I was living first in Rio and then in Porto Alegre, um, the, the team was, the national team was in a, in a bad way. Falcão, a great former player, turned out not to be a great manager for the national team. And there was a lot of uh, dispute about what he should do as, as you know, it's just common anywhere. But I was fascinated because what, what happened on the news, the, the, the nightly news on TV and on radio was that people, a lot of people were complaining that the, the real problem was that the team was too white. And this, um, you know, this was just kind of an amazing thing uh, for me to hear said just in that very, very frank way um, in these mainstream sources, particularly in Brazil, you know, a country that celebrates in different ways its, its, its blackness um, and particularly in football. And so this was really an odd thing. And I just thought, all right, I've, I've, this, this is it. I've, I've been working on other things, but this is my chance. Um, to pull off this beautiful scan that is, you know, calling uh, studying football work. And, uh, and uh, there I went. There I went. As with all these stories, as important as the individual is, so is the context of which that story is taking place. So my first question, and I directed it to Roger, was what type of country is Brazil? It's, it's, a, it's a massive, massive country um, that uh, is, I think that, the phrase that that gets both the good and the bad of Brazil is is the, the country of, of the future, which is something that it's been called for about 400 years, and that's that's wonderful because you know it's a vast country with huge resources, human and natural, and and you know there's a sense of real promise and potential. But of course, when you're calling yourself that for 400 years, you do have to realize that you you haven't reached that potential, and it's not looking good. Um, that you will uh, do so. So, you know, it's, it's a country that is, you know, famed for being, yeah, having this, you know, joyous kind of music and, and football and the beach and drinking caipirinhas and, and so on. But at the same time, you know, tremendously violent uh, cities and, and, uh, and, and so forth. So, you know, it, it, it's got those contradictions there. Um, you know, a country that also where, um, you know, racism doesn't seem to be prevalent. It's certainly not the kind of official story about Brazil. You know, Brazil is supposed to be a, a mixed race nation. Um, but, you know, anybody who's a person of color who's lived in Brazil uh, can tell you that, you know, if you, a person, a dark skinned person goes to uh, a nice uh, apartment building in Rio, um, odds are they'll be asked to take the servant's elevator up in the back. Um, so, so there is plenty of, of, of racism to go along with, you know, this celebration of, you know, the, the African contribution as that's often put, um, to the country, to its soccer, to its music, to its food. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a huge, it's a continent of a country that is, uh, um, still after all these, you know, 500 plus years, still trying to figure itself out. Roger mentions there that Brazil, like many other countries in the 21st century, has a great disproportion between rich and poor. And this has been highlighted in the UK, no more so than with the recent Marcus Rashford versus the government disagreement over free school meals. 
So I asked Roger, was that indicative of Brazil as a country? Yeah, unfortunately it is. Um, I mean, I think inequality is on the rise in most countries in the world, but in Brazil, Brazil has been, you know, since I think they started measuring these things, one of the most unequal countries in the world, um, along with places like Malawi and Guatemala. Um, and it's it's really, it's it's stark. It's stark in a lot of places, but in Brazil, you know, there's, there's, there's a wonderful book about Sao Paulo called City of Walls. And when you go there, you, you will realize how apt that title is um, because people with money, you know, build walls around their, their houses. If they live in, you know, condominium blocks, um, there are going to be not just walls, but walls with, you know, broken glass cemented on the top and uh, paid guards with guns and attack dogs patrolling the grounds. Um, because the the gap is is uh, is so vast between the rich and the poor, and it's there's a there's a tension there. Um, you know, there's there's more actual there's more fear of violence than there is actual violence, but there is a tremendous amount of actual violence as well. As we mentioned at the start of today's episode, it's almost impossible to think of Brazil and not instantly think of football. The two just go hand in hand. Whether that be Ronaldo. Clevis. Ronaldo's dummy. Ronaldo! It's 2-0! And Ronaldo is rampant now! Resplendent Ronaldo! Carlos Alberto. Erzino. Faced by Facchetti. Oh, that's not a bad ball for Pelé on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. And what a great goal that was! Or even, sorry everyone, Ronaldinho. Ronaldinho takes and David Seaman's call off his line and Brazil take the lead. Ronaldinho has scored. David Seaman is caught cold. Yeah, that was 20 years ago and it still stings. But the point still stands. Football and Brazil go hand in hand. Or at least that's what it seems like from the outside. So I asked Andrew, is that the same in reality? You know, football is, is, as I said, it's all around in Brazil. It's on the television all the time. Though I don't know that's really any different from... Uh, yeah, it's different from the UK because the UK, it's all done on pay-per-view here. It's all done in Sky and BT and all this kind of stuff. And in Brazil, there's still a lot of football that's on you know, open channels. So that's different. So football's everywhere. Um you know, even little things like, you know, culture, football. One of the things about Brazilian, about writing about Brazilian football is that following football in Brazil is not, it is seen as a semi-intellectual thing to do. Football in Britain, you know, especially up until the early 1990s when, you know, Nick Hornby and uh, Pete Davis came along with, with, you know, their two books, Simon Cooper slightly after, that, you know, football writing became something that was, you know, the intelligent people could do. It stopped being just like a laddish, hooliganish type of thing. In Brazil, that's never really been the case. In Brazil, you know, following football can and is, or can be seen as an intellectual pursuit. It's, it's, an, it's a thing that intelligent people do as well. And I think that was one of the big eye-openers for me, is that, you know, uh, you know, intelligent people, intellectuals, academics... You know, there's a whole different uh, way of looking at football that it's not seen as this kind of 
you know, what is not seen as only this working class kind of pursuit. And that was a real eye opener for me. Um, having said that, uh, Argentina, for example, is much more football obsessed than Brazil. When you look at, when you ask, when Brazilians do, when they've done polls on this and they've asked people, who do you support? And something like 25% of Brazilians will say, I don't support any team. Whereas in Argentina, that number is like in single figures. So Argent, all Argentines have a team, all Argentines follow their team. In Brazil, it's slightly different. There's all, a bunch of other things in Brazil that, that, that show you how ingrained football is into the, into the, into the culture. Uh, and one of the most obvious things is that you know, there's a lot of different phrases in everyday use and everyday language that are related to football. And, and, I'll, and I'll cite you just a couple. Uh, one is, is the, they say like, to pisar, pisar a bola, it means to stand on the ball. Literally, it means, pisar means to stand and a ball is stand on the ball. But that people use that in everyday, in everyday sentences to mean to screw up. Uh, you know, he stood on the ball means, you know, he made a mistake or he screwed up or, you know, there's another thing that says, nesse altura do campeonato, at this stage of the, the championship, that means, you know, that means what it means in football. But it, people also use that to say, you know, at this point in the proceedings or at this point in time. So you can use that in politics, you know, go, in, uh, you know at this part of the championship, you know, the law is still to be discussed by both sides in Parliament. I, think. I don't know if I'm, if I'm making sense here. But these are ways that you see football has seeped into the everyday culture that's not quite, that you don't see in, in a lot of other countries. So we've established an idea as to what type of country Brazil is, both politically and socially. And we've also established that its relationship with football is as strong and as pure as we really think it is. And one of the elements of that and this will bring us nicely onto Gaincha, is the idea of the street footballer. I think in the UK we probably think of the likes of Wayne Rooney, Paul Gascoigne, as those archetypal street footballers kicking a ball up against the wall, and they take that style onto the pitch. But also, I'm sure any football fan would agree that when you think of a street footballer, you think of South America, you think of technical skill, you think of tricks, you think of ball control, and none more so than Brazil. Neymar, Ronaldo, Rivaldo, Pele. So I asked Roger, was that true? Is there a real sense of street footballers ruling the roost in Brazil? Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, again, as with a lot of places, it's that's changing a bit too. But, you know, the, the, the fact that that's most of Brazilians are, you know, of mixed race and, you know, the poverty um, skews to, you know, you know, so that, you know, the poor tend to be, are more likely to be um, Afro-descendant than, than white. And, um, you know, that means that most of anybody, um, uh, especially most footballers are going to come from those groups, the poor um, and, and the, the people, uh, brown and black people of, of Brazil. Um, and yeah, you know, I loved writing uh, my favorite, part of this book was in fact, you know, digging into the biographies of all these players, some of whom I had known and idolized, others of whom I really, you know, were just names when I started out. And they all started that way. They all came up um, uh, from, from poverty. They all came up playing uh, on the streets, playing with their, their friends and, 
in the backyard and if they had a yard, which they rarely did, um, but playing on the street, you know, tales of breaking windows and getting in trouble and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, and, you know, there's similar things everywhere. And, you know, the, the P-Bay in, in Argentina, like Maradona, you know, listen to Bumper Graham talk about Scotland. That's, you know, that's the, the, the loss of that street footballer is, is, is one of the issues that Scotland's had. Um, but it is very much part of, of the, the, the fame, the reason that certain players get to be so beloved uh, is that they're seen as, as having come up that way and then also maintain connections um, to their, their communities. Um, not all do um, that uh, very well, but some, some do um, quite well. Okay, so that takes us nicely onto the main man, Gaincha. For those of you who don't know who he is, and I'll stop you there and say you should know who he is, and if you haven't seen him play or haven't seen any highlights of him, then immediately pause this podcast, go to YouTube and watch some of his videos because it's an absolute joy. To help you along with that, I asked Roger, who was Skyncha? Uh, he, he was one of these players who came up from poverty. He, he, he grew up in a, a mill town, a small... Uh, uh, textile mill town north of uh, Rio uh, called Pau Granji, which just means big stick or big tree, um, which in fact the city had until the British uh, mill owner showed up and cut it down in the late 19th century. <laughs> They'll do um, that. Yeah, they do that, yes. Um, only because the Americans didn't get there first. But anyway, um, yeah, he, he grew up in this mill town and he played in the streets and in the the fields around the the mill um with his friends they just had the run of the 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 the, the, the town um very uneven pitches there's a great old movie that um was made about him and, and you know he he took part in and called uh, joy of the people which is one of his nicknames and he went back to that town and was just playing on those same fields where he had played as a kid with his friends, swing and uh, pincel, which means brush. So those, those are good good nicknames. He, his, he was named after a small bird. So he had little bird swing and brush, you know, kicking the ball around. And uh, yeah, he, 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 he also was known as the angel with crooked legs because if you ever see a picture of him, uh, he didn't have bow legs. He had legs that bowed in parallel uh, to each other. It looked like a sort of swift, a strong wind had blown him and his legs both the same direction. Um, in spite of that, he turned out to be a, 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 an amazing footballer and, and um, somebody who I think would still do well um, in, um, in more contemporary, the more contemporary game. Um, he was a powerful, surprisingly powerful, and a tremendously skilled dribbler. Um, his dribbling, his ability to, to dribble, uh, and his love of dribbling drove his coach, all coaches mad from the time he was a kid um, to the time he was a, on the national, the national side. Um, they all tried to get him to stop, and eventually they all realized that they couldn't, and in fact shouldn't, um, because he was great at it. And I don't think that he's one of the players who, who sort of YouTube does justice to. 
um, because he does tend to, he was one of the, he's like a sort of early Aryan Robin, you know, he, you, you knew what side he was going to. Uh, he was very, very one-footed. He was right-footed, unlike uh, uh, Robin. Um, you knew what he was going to do, but but he kept doing it. And, you know, he just needed to get past the defenders a couple times a game, get an excellent cross in or get a shot off. Um, he did score over 200 goals. And as much as we might make fun of how goals get counted in Brazil, thinking of Pele, um, he scored a lot of goals. Um, the precise number doesn't matter. And, uh, and he was just, he was fearless too and playful. Um, famously, you know, he, he uh, loved to dribble um, through the defense and then bring the ball back out and do it again. Um, in a warm up before the, uh, Swed the Sweden World Cup in 1958, uh, he went through, he went past what, three defenders of Fiorentina and the goalie, and then stopped just for a moment at the goal line until they could all run and catch up and then just knocked it over the line just for fun, because that that's how he played. He, he had a tremendous amount of skill and he enjoyed using it, um, not to belittle others, but really just because he, he was, he was having fun. For anyone who has watched any of the YouTube highlights of Gaincha, and there are a lot of them, you can see that he's the type of player who probably would have been able to to fit in today, he looks like a modern day player, he carries himself like a modern day player, his touch and his control looks like the type of thing we might see on 21st century televisions, and there are a few comparisons that we can make to kind of better contextualise what type of player he was, one that Roger made there was Iron Robin. Robin, whose legs are fresh, Ramos' arms, Robin's trying to go around him, still a chance for Iron Robin! It's a landslide! Again, the composure, the brilliance of Arjen Robben. But the one that came immediately to my mind was Robin Friday, a man that we covered on an episode of Under Flat Caps and Bowler Hats just a few months back, as perfectly described by Paolo Hewitt in this short quote from that episode. There were some people who got very annoyed with him, though, because I, I met a A's fan and he said he drove us mad. I said, why? He said, well, he'd get the ball, he'd go past three players and the centre forward standing in front of an open goal, but instead of passing it to him, he'd go back and beat the three players again. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, And next, ask Roger, what Gaines' home life was like? What was his upbringing like? This will start to paint a picture of the type of person that he was, the type of background that he had, and where his life would go as he got older. Yeah, well, he was he was pretty much uh, he was a bit feral, uh, to be honest. He was. <laughs> um, I think he enjoyed it tremendously, but um, he he you know his his father he was the, the one of five children that his father had um, with his mother, and then but his father was famous in their town for. Uh, a couple of things. One of them was drinking and the other one uh, was womanizing. Um, his father was very, very much an alcoholic who never came to terms uh, with that, uh, that addiction. Um, and, you know, he was generally, uh, you know, well regarded, I guess, in, in the town. Um, but, you know, by the time his father was in his fifties and sixties, 
uh, you know, the kids or and friends would be hauling him, having to haul him home uh, in the middle of the night or in the morning because he couldn't, he was too drunk to walk home. Uh, on a couple occasions, they'd have to, he'd, they'd find him not only passed out, but also nude and they'd have to carry him home nude, which is, uh, which is which is something for somebody um, for a child to to deal with. Uh, his mother died when he was 16 then too, so he he lost that um, at that point. Um, his father, though, you know, also you know, as I said, was uh, was known in the town for you know. I don't I don't know if he was a sex addict. I don't know that much about him. Don't know. I'm not a, a clinical psychologist, but certainly um, um, set this, this pattern for his son uh, to follow, which unfortunately he did, of really pursuing sex with a lot of different women. Do you think he was sort of a, Garincha was then a, a, a product of his environment then? It very much seems so. Um, it's the kind of thing that it's almost too easy, but in this case, I think it's, it's, it's easy um, to draw that conclusion because it's so so stark um, the the parallels between his father in particular and and that environment and the way uh, he lived his own life the way it played out on a, a sort of broader national and, and international scene. Um, but when he went to Rio, um, you know he he left behind a wife and a couple of kids, um, whom he he got married very early. Um, he started, um, once he was getting paid, he, he didn't care much about money. He was really notoriously bad about money, but even making sure that he got paid what he was supposed to get paid and the contracts, um, that he signed blind. He just would put a signature on and trust the club director to put in a good figure above that. Not a good thing for a football player to do, obviously. Um, but he also, um, took up with lots of different women, um, showgirls, you know, women who in Brazil were referred to as uh, Maria Chutera, uh, which is kind of like a soccer groupie. Um, and most famously, he uh, had a long-term relationship with Elsa Suarez, who was a huge musical star at the time and still is to this day um, at 80 years of age. Um, she was a as famous as he was, but she was a singer, um, uh, uh, Afro-Brazilian woman, um, very savvy, unlike him, about um, the professional side of things and tried to help him um, as best she could. But uh, he continued to you know, have affairs even when he was with Elza. Um, his drinking only got worse. Um, she finally left him um, when he began to abuse her physically, um, when he got very drunk and very frustrated. Um, so yes, you know, his addictions uh, really did kind of come together in a particularly nasty way and destroyed what had been a really uh, important relationship, the important relationship in his life. I'm going to rewind a little bit at this point and just briefly touch on Gainja's club career the bulk of which was spent at Botafogo, where he made his debut on the on July the 19th, 1953, where, and this won't come as a surprise, he scored a hat-trick. And he stayed at Botafogo for the next 13 years, 
playing 614 matches and scoring 245 goals. This was despite interest from Juventus in 1954, Real Madrid in 1959, and then a joint bid by Inter and AC, both of Milan, in 1963. But as I say, he stayed at Botafogo for the bulk of his career before moving on to Corinthians. He then spent some time in Colombia uh, before returning to Brazil and playing for Flamengo. But it was Guy Inch's international career that really put him in the history books. He made his Brazil debut in 1955 in Rio de Janeiro against Chile. And this was just one year after the 1954 World Cup, where Brazil had crashed out in the first round after losing 4-2 to Hungary at the Battle of Bern. Now, this Hungary team was the same famous Hungary team that beat England 6-3 and shocked the national team at Wembley in 1953. The Hungarians appear to have decided it's time, and there is the whistle. It's all over. England 3, Hungary 6. England 3, Hungary 6. But that was no problem at all, because England had a chance to make amends just the next year as they arranged a rematch against Hungary in Budapest. Oh yeah, England lost that match 7-1. But moving on. On to the 1958 World Cup. Now, at this point, Brazil were yet to win a World Cup. And they went into that tournament with Gaincha in top form, alongside a 17-year-old man you may have heard of. His name's Pele. It was the first time he'd be seen on the world stage, but he didn't play until the last group game. So it was down to Gaincha to pull that Brazil team through. And during that tournament, England and Brazil actually played out the first ever goalless draw in a World Cup match. Yeah, you could have guessed it would be England. The 1958 World Cup, despite being a success ultimately for Brazil and for Gaincha, wasn't all plain sailing. Gaincha, he went to the 1958 World Cup and for the first time in 1958, Brazil had put together a real proper backroom staff because Brazil had lost in the final match of the 1950 World Cup. Uruguay when they were expected to win. All they had to do was draw to win to win the title. Then in 1954 they went and they you know they crashed out. Um, when again they thought that they were in with a good chance of winning. So in 1958, by this point, Jean Havelange, who was a former who, who would go on to become president of FIFA, he 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 took over and he kind of professionalized things and he introduced you know proper doctors, proper sociologists, pro- proper uh, trainers, all this kind of stuff, and they did these. They, they gave the the, the players uh, intelligent tests, uh, IQ tests, essentially, uh, and they did this one with Gahinsha, and it said, you know, he's infantile. You know, we shouldn't be taking him to the World Cup because he doesn't have the intelligence, you know, to handle to handle this kind of level. Uh, and and it, people look at it now and just laugh, you know, as if you know being able to do you know, the square root of nine, you know, or, you know, tell us, you know, who wrote, you know, A Midsummer Night's Dream was relevant to how good you could play football. Uh, so Gahincha was never going to win any any intelligence contests, but when it came to when it came to football, he was head and shoulders above everyone else at the time, or almost everyone else at the time. But Brazil would be- go on to win that tournament, beating Sweden 5-2 in the final with Gaincha playing a key role. They were 1-0 down after eight minutes. 
and Gaincha went on one of his trademark runs down the right-hand side, leaving the fullback for dead before playing it across the goal for teammate Vava to score. Gaincha would then have a hand in the second goal with a similar move, again setting up Vava to make the score 2-1. Passou pelo Axbon. Garrincha levantou. Ele estava chegando ainda no Brasil. Vamos ver o Mané. Vamos ver o Mané. Olha o Axbon. Mané levou, cruzou Vava! Brazil didn't look back. With the match finishing 5-2, they celebrated their first World Cup win and Gaincha found himself in the best 11 for that tournament. Four years later, Gaincha would play in his second World Cup. But the four years intermediate between those two World Cups just give an insight into the distressing and, and unpredictable world that Gaincha was living off the field. He put on weight after the 1958 World Cup mainly because of the drinking, and he was dropped from the national team for a friendly match in Rio against England on the 13th of May 1959. Later on that same month, he would go on a tour with Botafogo to Sweden. When he returned to Brazil, he drove home to Pau Grande and ran over his father, Amaro. He drove off without stopping, and an angry mob chased him. Eventually, when they caught up with him, they found him drunk, almost catatonic, and with no grasp of what he had done. In August of that year, his wife, Naya, gave birth to their fifth child, and his mistress, Urashi, announced her first pregnancy. His father also died of liver cancer on October the 10th, having been dependent on alcohol for years. Gainchu was well in the throes of an alcohol addiction at this point, so I asked Roger, how did he think the Gainchu's addictions would have been viewed at that time? It was, they were, they were treated as, you know, amusing and then, and then as um, just a, fa a moral failure. I mean, there was sort of no middle ground uh, and certainly there wasn't, uh, Brazil had um, very good psychologists uh, psych and psychiatrists, um, but there was nothing, no sort of uh, sense of, of uh, that, that, treatment should be available to um, people in general, um, certainly not, uh, um, certainly not sort of normal, normal folk um, beyond the very rich uh, elite. So yeah, addictions were, you know, alcoholism, it was, it was, you know, amusing um, uh, when he would be doing, uh, when it would see, when people could think of it as just sort of hijinks, um, then it was kind of amusing. But as soon as it became apparent that it was something more serious, that he was really driving people away when he was, you know, destroying relationships, um, uh, then, uh, you know, it was not seen as a, as a medical or treatable issue. It was really just seen as a failure. And, and that's, you know, that's why at the end of his career, you know, um, he was failing physically and you know things were winding down on on the pitch and off the pitch, you know this his alcoholism in particular 
um, and uh, his his habit of you know going after after uh, relationship after relationship not even relationship just sex let's be honest um, these things were you know used against him you know as as not just you know problems that he had to deal with but really just his fault his failing so into the 1962 World Cup and very early on Brazil take a knock as Pele then 21 and had shone so brightly four years earlier, was injured after the second match and sidelined for the remainder of the tournament. Gaincha, the pressure was on him. He was to be the leading man in Brazil's attack. And he excelled in matches against England and Chile in the quarter and semi-finals. Now, the match against England was notable for a number of reasons. Most importantly of all, Gaincha's performance. He showed the English team, the English press, the English public exactly what he had in his locker and was described by one newspaper as Stanley Matthews, Tom Finney and a snake charmer all rolled into one. That match is also notable for something else and I'm going to leave it up to the great Jimmy Greaves to describe that to you. Jason, I was playing against uh, Brazil, believe it or not, in the quarterfinals. We got the quarterfinals, Marina Del Mar. And you could walk in the ground at the sides, you know, and this dog came in. And uh, uh, actually, we we didn't know whether to keep him on. <laughs> but anyway, referee stopped the game. No one could get hold of this dog, and suddenly I got down on my hands and knees, being a dog lover anyway, and called the dog over. And the old dog came over. It was, and of course, I got a massive cheer, and I picked the dog up and cuddled him. And as I cuddled him, he peed all down. <laughs> so, he never had chain strips in those days, of course. You just had the one shirt. And so I had to play in, uh, in this shirt. After the game, Garincha, who was their great player, great he was unbelievable in that World Cup, uh, he wanted the dog. And so he took the dog back to Brazil with him. And, um, called it Greavesy. Called it Greavesy, yeah. <laughs> and, um, well, it played better than me. I mean, <laughs> but anyway, when we, we, we're on our way home and we stop at Recife for, for refueling, as you did in those days. And uh, we get out of the plane because we've got a couple of hours to kill. And we go into the uh, airport lounge, you know, this shed. Um, <laughs> and there's about 200 photographers all clicking and... They, they're taking pictures of me. And they wanted a picture of the man who got Garincha's dog. <laughs> so I'm known in Brazil as Garincha's dog catcher. <laughs> Brazil would go on to win that tournament in 1962, beating Czechoslovakia 3-1 in the final, becoming only the second team to win consecutive World Cups, joining Italy, who won it in 1934 and 1938. Four years later, and the World Cup was in England, 1966. Now, we all know how that finished. And here comes Hurst. He's got some fiddler on the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. It's four. But for Gaincha and Brazil, it was a different story. They were back-to-back champions. They were the favourites. And despite Gaincha having problems with fitness and his knee, that eventually was starting to catch up with him, his first match, Brazil's first match, they beat Bulgaria 2-0. Pele and Garincha on the score sheet. 
which interestingly enough was the only time Pele and Garincha were ever on the score sheet in the same game. The second match, Garincha and Brazil, would be defeated 3-1 by the Hungarians. Hungary, the team that had beaten Brazil in the 1954 World Cup, just before Garincha had broken into the side. It was the only defeat he ever suffered in a Brazil shirt and was his last ever game for his country, as Brazil were knocked out in the first round. Gainche's career would last for another six years, but he would never reach the heights of the two World Cup wins. It would be impossible to. But with his ever-spiralling lifestyle off the pitch and his knee injuries on the pitch, his life began to take a drastic and difficult turn. Now, in these episodes, we always like to look back at a time when mental health was looked at differently than it is today to see what we can learn. And that was the next part of our conversation where I was asking Roger and Andrew how mental health and addiction was perceived at that time? Uh, I, I don't think there was any, you know, I mean, the term mental health, I don't think had ever really been discovered, at least not in Brazil, not that I know of. Uh, you know, you drank, you drank, you were an alcoholic. That was that was essentially it. You know, and he tried to hide it. You know, he made it difficult for people to help him. Uh, he tried to hide it. You know, he was married to this, to, to a very famous samba singer, uh, you know, who tried to help him, you know, struggled and struggled and struggled. Um, if people are going to drink, there's only so much you can do to help them, you know, if, if they don't want to stop. And I think that was definitely the case with, with, with Gohincha. You know, he had these knees that really, if, you know, born that way, he could have, with some braces, probably have had his legs straightened easily um, uh, with some medical attention, but he didn't get that. His knees went, um, he didn't want to have them treated. He finally did um, have a knee operation. It didn't help at all. Uh, he really felt that he had nothing else besides football. Um, so he kept playing and moved down the ranks steadily um, and finally retired. But, but, you know, as he was moving down the ranks, his drinking was, you know, just increasing. And, you know, they, they fed off each other. He was frustrated with his career. He drank more. That just caused problems, further problems for his career. Um, and finally, he died of cirrhosis in 1983 at age 49. And at that time, I, I, I presume that there wasn't any kind of help that was encouraged to him or he wasn't offered any assistance, any, and as I say, due to the sort of way that his addictions were viewed. Uh, no, except for uh, from Elsa, uh, Elsa Suarez, who even after... Uh, even after he abused her and she left him, she did, uh, I mean, she's, a, she's an amazing woman and she uh, did try to get him uh, into some kind of sanatorium or something like that to, um, uh, to you know, get some kind of treatment because there were such places for the wealthy, um, but he, he just refused. Um, he, he, you know, he, he thanked her, but just went off and, uh, um, and, found some more cachaça, the hard kind of uh, sugarcane brandy that, that he preferred and which also his father had, had uh, preferred before him. 
Roger there was talking about Elsa Suarez, who, uh, for those of you who don't know who Elsa Suarez is, which which actually included me before I did this episode, she's a Brazilian samba singer who was born in uh, June of 1930 in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, still making music today, almost 100 years later. And she was named as one of the singers of the millennium alongside Tina Turner in 1999 by BBC Radio, which does give you a, an idea of the gravitas of the woman. I would suggest that the song you probably most know her for is this one. She met Gainja when she was 32. She was vilified by Brazilian society. A lot of them sort of believed that she broke up his his, his marriage at the time. He was also not really accepted by Gainja's friends and, and, and close associates. So it was a bit of a turbulent relationship, one which you can probably understand given the way that Gainja lived his life off the field. And it was actually a, a tragic incident involving Gainja that killed uh, Elsa Suarez's mother, a drink driving incident where her mother was thrown from the car and and killed and even more tragically than that a few years after Gaincha died the only son that they had together was also killed in a car accident at age nine and was also thrown from the car so a really sad story there both for for Elsa and also for Gaincha but it's incredibly important when you think of Gaincha that you also think of Elsa Suarez who as Roger said was an incredible woman and remains an incredible woman and was probably the only person in Gaincha's life that was really genuinely trying to help him at that time. So we now come on to the final chapter of this story and it's a, a really sad story. The success that Gaincha had on the pitch, the the talent, the, the, the colour, the magic, the, the ability to inspire so many stands in real stark contrast to the dark and, and, and troubling life that he lived off it. And after a number of years of financial problems, health problems, relationship issues, eventually Gainja died of cirrhosis of the liver on the 20th of January 1983. This was after being put into a, an, an alcoholic coma in Rio de Janeiro. He'd actually been hospitalised eight times in the previous year and it was said that by the time of his death, he was a, a physical and, and mental wreck. Sadly, the last few years of his life were were unhappy and he lived a lot of them in obscurity and to many people, I think he'd become a bit of a forgotten hero. But when he died, the the outpouring of emotion, the outpouring of respect from the Brazilian public was was overwhelming and you can see some images and some some videos and stuff online. It really was incredible and that was the next question I had for, for Roger and Andrew to kind of wrap up this story was... Why were people so upset when he died? Why why was there such this enormous outpouring of emotion? You know, first of all, he was one of the central players in making Brazil a world power. You know, he was, you know, uh, he was there in '58 when they won the first World Cup. He was there in '62 when they won the next World Cup, and he was an integral part of the team both times. So Brazil, in large part, is became a footballing power because of because of Gahincha. There was a there was a few of them. To be to be fair, there was, you know, Pelé was there both times. Uh, Didi. Midfielder was there both times, Nilton Santos, uh, you know, several others. But, you know, because he had this innocence about him, he had this playfulness about him, he had this, you know, uh, 
just joy about him. And I think that's one of the reasons that, that made him so so adored. You know, when, when he died, you know, the, the Brazil stopped. It was, I think, the only the only thing you can compare it to in Brazil in the 40 years since was the death of Ayrton Senna. Um, what happened with Gahincha is, you know, he was taken on a, you know, in Brazil, they put them on the back of a fire truck. A fire truck is like our equivalent of a, of an open top bus. Um, and they put his body on the back of a, of a fire truck so everybody could see it and everybody could pay homage to him. And they drove it from the, from Rio, the center of Rio up to his hometown. And, you know, people, I mean, people literally lined the streets. I mean, it's quite a long way. Uh, you know, it'll take you an hour, an hour and a half, two hours to get there. And it took much longer than that because so many people were out in the streets, you know, lamenting his death. Um, because he was, you know, so, so revered by people. Um, and, you know, that, that was, that, you know, you saw how revered he was in the stadiums with people cheering him and, and, and you know, you saw that on the football pitch, but you never really saw it quite so generously, quite so enormously, quite so, quite such a national level as as you did when he died, and all these you know hundreds of thousands of people were out celebrating him, you know him as he as he was driven home in the, in, in the coffin. I think honestly, um, this this sounds a bit harsh, but I think when he finally died, you know the the Gahinsha that he'd become, you know, this very publicly troubled man, you know, with these demons he could not overcome or really even face, you know, um, he was appearing in promotional things and propped up on a float in a carnival parade, you know, when he finally then died, people didn't have to remember that man anymore. And they could remember just the player who'd been so great for Botafogo, for, um, for Brazil, who'd won two, uh, two World Cups, who'd been such a great player with his distinctive style, who'd brought fame to Brazil, who'd helped you know, that golden age of, uh, of Brazilian football uh, come into being. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's a bit of a cynical take. You know, I think people did love him um, but you know, having the image of the this this troubled man removed made it easier to love him. Brazil, or you know, football more broadly, do you think? Do you think it's learned from people like Garincha in terms of the way that it, it looks after its players, the way that it, it views its players? Um, I, I'm gonna say um, yes because um, from the way. Football treated him. There's only there's only up. Um, uh, he was so poorly served, and the the clubs really did nothing for him. Um, they didn't meet his contracts, much less you know deal help him deal with with his addictions. Um, so I think you know there has been some improvement, um, but you know football in, in general, I'm, uh, uh, Brazilian football is 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 what I what I know best, and. You know, most players in Brazil are playing at a you know, minimum wage. Um, they don't have full-time footballing gigs. They they play part of the year. Um, they earn you know a hundred dollars, three hundred dollars a month. Um, you know, they are they have short careers. They're they're pretty much disposable. 
I think the stars, once you get into a big club, they do um, have, have much better treatment now. And it is, you know, mental health and addiction are now seen as actual medical problems and clubs are addressing them and have people on staff to address them. Um, so that's the end of our story about Guy Incher. I want to thank you so much for, for listening and for joining me today. And most of all, I want to thank Andrew Downey and Roger Kittleson for their their time and their expertise. It was a real pleasure putting this story together. So thank you so much to both of you. You can find us on Twitter at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use the hashtag where's the talking lads. We have yeah. another episode out on Monday, which is an interview with the Guardian football cartoonist David Squires. So do check that one out. As I said, thank you for listening. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Okay, two very short anecdotes. I promise there are two, and 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 you're a terrific editor, so or, or at least have somebody who is uh, is what is what we count on. Brazil, when it's starting to become a great nation of, of football, leading up to '58, when they're going to win their first World Cup, they they bring in all of these these medical professionals. They do all sorts of things, but one of the guys they do they bring in is a, is an applied psychologist. Uh, who were, had been doing sort of industrial work, you know, trying to find out who, testing people to see who'd be the best bus driver and that kind of thing. And he applied this test to all the guys who were trying out. They're in the camp for the uh, national team in '58, and uh, he just judged Gaincha to be, you know, not just unfit but un, you know, incapable of, of dealing with any kind of stress. Uh, that he might uh, confront in the World Cup. And the test uh, is a series of tests that he had to sort of fill in different you know, different rectangles and so forth. And, you know, very simple kind of stuff. But, you know, out of 123 total points, um, he scored 38 and really was judged to be um, essentially an, an, an imbecile uh, was, was the term that was, that was used. And then these stories of him being simple are, you know, there are a lot of versions of them. So the, 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 the famous one is that on the way back from winning the World Cup in Sweden, he had purchased a, a transistor radio, which was, you know, a new thing at the time and, you know, hot item. Um, and uh, supposedly that one of the trainers said, oh, you know, Mané, which is another of his nicknames, um, you, know, you know, that's not going to work in Brazil. It only gets Swedish stations. And then, the, and then Gahinsha, you know, got Gahinsha to sell it to him cheap. It seems that the story is that, in fact, he had pulled that trick on somebody else. And uh, coming back from a club trip to, to Denmark in 1955, he said he convinced somebody else that they needed a special trans, uh, translator um, to turn a radio to uh, to uh, to translate the uh, danish that would come in on the stage on the on this radio